0: Well, I struggle to love people, and I told that to the search team as I was interviewing for this pastor position, and I think it concerned them a bit as they were hearing that. Uh, but it's not that I that I don't love people at all. I love people deeply. It's that my love is imperfect. It's not what it should be. Sometimes I get angry. Sometimes I get frustrated. And impatient. Sometimes I say hurtful things. Sometimes my motives are impure. Sometimes I judge wrongly. Sometimes I ignore people, annoy people, and even show favoritism to people. My love is imperfect. How would you summarize God's law? Well, here's how Scripture summarizes it You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. I can't obey the law of love apart from Christ. The law of love exposes my failure to love. Exposes my need and it drives me to Christ who is the incarnation of love and where I receive grace to love God and others. Grace is what I need to love as God loves. Now, if all I hear is the command of Scripture, love others, without hearing the how of Scripture... It will push me deeper into guilt and discouragement if I'm honest about my failures. Or it will fuel my pride if I'm delusional and I think that I can actually obey God's law on my own. Neither is helpful. The truth is, Christ alone is my hope to love. I need to be transformed by grace from the inside out. And if I don't hear the gospel, if I don't believe the gospel, I have no hope in obeying the law of love. Because the law can't transform me. Only Christ can. If I'm going to love as God loves, I must first be transformed by His grace. Do you know what God's grace is doing in us? Through faith it makes us heartily willing and ready to live for god which includes loving others sovereign grace produces supernatural love in us a love that is so counterintuitive excuse me <clears throat> and countercultural that the only explanation of it is god's transforming and empowering grace after lunch we're going to watch piercing word perform the sermon on the mount And their script is Scripture, word by word from the ESV translation. Pretty sweet stuff. And I wonder how you will hear the Sermon on the Mount. How will you hear it? How should we hear the Sermon on the Mount? If the Sermon on the Mount is going to help us, we must hear it rightly. Here are two ways not to hear the Sermon on the Mount debilitating guilt debilitating guilt if all you hear in this famous sermon is a greater call to morality you'll likely find yourself discouraged disheartened and despairing because the degree of morality that jesus requires in the sermon is far beyond your ability So if you strive to simply do what Jesus says, guilt will likely debilitate you into spiritual depression or lead you to abandon Scripture and indulge in your sin because at least you can do that well. Secondly, self-inflating pride. If all you hear in the Sermon on the Mount is a greater call to morality, you may find yourself feeling pretty good about yourself because you're trying harder than others. You may overlook many of your own sins, highlight everyone else's worst sins, and feel good about yourself. You may ignore your spiritual inability and, like a Pharisee, swell up with pride at how well you're living compared to everyone else. Which, if you think about it, is another way to invite spiritual depression. You can't live like that. You can't live up to that standard. Uh, and, and in time, self de- deception will leave you hopeless completely hopeless. And self-inflating pride is also a great way to encourage indulgence in sin because self-justification and self-righteousness are the fast track to immorality. If you watch Piercing Word and you listen foolishly, you're liable to leave here feeling spiritually depressed or spiritually self-sufficient, both of which are ruinous. There's a better way to hear the Sermon on the Mount. How should we hear the Sermon on the Mount? Well, you should know the name J. Gresham Machen. That's a name you should know, J. Gresham Machen. J. Gresham Machen was a Presbyterian theologian in the early 20th centuries. He's somewhat of a theological rock star. Uh, Among other achievements, Machen started Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. Listen to what Machen said about the Sermon on the Mount. Because it can help you hear it rightly. This is what he said. So it is with the whole of the discourse. The new law of the Sermon on the Mount in itself can only produce despair. Strange indeed is the complacency with which modern men can say that the golden rule and the high ethical principles of Jesus are all that they need. In reality, if the requirements for entrance into the kingdom of God are what Jesus declares them to be, we are all undone. We have not even attained to the external righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, and how shall we attain to that righteousness of the heart which Jesus demands? Machin continued, the Sermon on the Mount, rightly interpreted then, makes man a seeker after some divine means of salvation by which entrance into the kingdom can be obtained. Even Moses was too high for us, but before this higher law of Jesus, who shall stand without being condemned? The Sermon on the Mount, like all the rest of the New Testament, really leads a man straight to the foot of the cross. End of quote. That's really good. I don't know if you took all that in, but that's really good. The Sermon on the Mount, like all the rest of the New Testament, really leads a man straight to the foot of the cross. Why? Because we find ourselves utterly unable to do any of it. The ethical standard Jesus gives is too much for us. Ligonier teaching fellow Dr. Sinclair Ferguson said this, but the truth of the matter is that this sermon is apparently the most beloved sermon in all the world and probably the most frequently misunderstood sermon because when you read through the Sermon on the Mount, rather than saying, I really love that, you find yourself crying out, Lord, help me. I don't have the resources to live like that. I don't have it in me to respond to this sermon. End of quote. And that's how... We must hear the sermon. I can't do it. I don't have it in me. Hearing it like that opens up, opens us up to receive supernatural grace through faith in Christ who has done it and who will empower us to do it. The the Sermon on the Mount is the law of the kingdom of Christ. It describes the way the king lives. It describes the kind of life the king leads his people to live. So if we don't hear the Sermon on the Mount with God's supernatural grace in mind, it will likely lead us into debilitating guilt or self-inflating pride. The chapters leading up to the Sermon on the Mount are all about Jesus, the divine king. They establish his authority And his moral perfection as king. The great sermon is built on the messianic and royal identity of Jesus Christ. The melody of the sermon is the moral supremacy of Jesus Christ. And the harmony is the ethics of his glorious kingdom. And Jesus preached to his disciples. Certainly there was a large crowd in the vicinity. But Matthew is clear. Jesus ascended the mountain, sat down, and taught his disciples who had come to him. He preached to those he had brought into the kingdom. This was not a generic message for the populace, rather a message about kingdom living for those he graciously brought into his kingdom to enjoy the benefits of his benevolent reign and rule. If we are to hear the sermon rightly, we must hear it as people transformed by God's grace. And people placed beneath the reign and rule of Christ the King. We must hear it as a description of the beautiful life that we can live as we walk by the Spirit. So all of that introduction is to help us hear the sermon, which will be performed later by the piercing word, but also to help us hear today's text, Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48, part of the Sermon on the Mount. So we start here. Mainstream ethics and commonly quoted religious adages are often very wrong. You have heard it said, God helps those who help themselves. That's unbiblical and that's anti-Jesus. You have heard it said that money is the root of all evil. No, it isn't. The Bible actually says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. Big difference. You have heard it said, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That may be true in one sense, but it is often a wicked lie that Satan used to, to tell biblically illiterate people that God is a heavenly genie who exists to give them whatever their sinful hearts desire. Jesus combated mainstream ethics and commonly quoted religious adages among the Jews. He said in verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, the Old Testament absolutely said to love your neighbor, but it doesn't say hate your enemy. That was a false teaching mixed into common Jewish thought, probably because of a poor interpretation of neighbor, which many reduced to mean fellow Jews only. In other words, love your tribe, your cronies, your allies, your religious and ethnic associates. The king's love goes beyond that. Mainstream ethics and commonly quoted religious adages are often very wrong, very misleading, very self-centered, and self-justifying the word of christ is the authoritative source of true god glorifying ethics second point true children of god love their enemies supernaturally Jesus preached, but I say to you, Jesus, the king, possesses all authority. Whatever his disciples had heard before, whatever any other rabbi had said before, Jesus had the final and authoritative word. When the sovereign king speaks, it is true and it is law. Verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies. Not hate your enemies. Hate is natural. Hate is expected. Hate is easy. Those in the kingdom, under the reign and rule of the king, they don't hate their enemies, they love them. Now, Jesus doesn't mean love the people that you consider worthy of your love. That's not what he said. He means by implication love the people you consider entirely unworthy. Love your love. Love them. Love them. This week, I was outside uh, with the kids and trying to help Jeremiah with something, and I belittled him. I belittled my beloved son. My words were laced with sarcasm and discouragement. My tone was unkind and impatient. It dawned on me later how crushing my words uh, can be for my son. So I confessed to him and I ask him to forgive me. He's very gracious. He always is. Uh, he's turning into a champ of a man. Jeremiah is one of the people I love the most and treasure the most. And if I struggle to love people that I treasure most, how on earth am I going to love the people who hate me? It's impossible for me to love my enemies, and I need the king's grace to put supernatural love in my heart so that I can love like him. This kingdom law of love is impossible for sinful human beings to obey apart from divine grace. If we reach deep inside ourselves to find what we need to love our enemies, we will be ever searching because it is not in us. It's not there. The love needed to love our enemies is supernatural. It's outside of us. God must pour His love into you through the Holy Spirit so that you have what you need to love your enemies. And when he does, when he pours it into you, you have what you need to love your enemies. Love is self-sacrifice for the good of another. Love is putting another ahead of yourself. With Christ's command in mind, consider 1 Corinthians 13. Love is being patient and kind with your worst enemies. Love is not envying or boasting or being arrogant or rude with your worst enemies. Love is not insisting on your own way with your enemies. Love is not even being irritable or resentful with your worst of enemies. Folks, we have a hard time doing that with the people that we love the most. How can you love the person who gets in the way of your personal agenda? How can you love the assailant who emotionally, physically, or sexually abused you? How can you love the bully who shames you in front of others or the person who ignores you? How can you love the people who have stolen from you, cheated you, lied to you, abandoned you, betrayed you, and hated you? You can't. You can't. Only the king loves like that. But the gracious king can give you his supernatural love and power so that you love like him. God can put supernatural love, which wasn't there before, into your heart so that, and this is very key, by faith in Christ, you want to love your worst enemies. And in fact, you actually do love your worst enemies. The transforming grace of God pours love into you through faith so that you have what it takes to love anyone. Don't ever forget that you were God's worst enemy and God loved you, transformed you, brought you into his kingdom to flourish under his reign and rule. God knows your limitations. God knows your struggles. God knows how hard it is for you to love and that you don't have it in you. And because he loves you, because he puts his supernatural love in you, even you can love the unlovable as he does. Brothers and sisters, he does that for you, and he does that for me. Jesus said, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Next point, true children of God pray for their persecutors supernaturally. Retaliation is natural. Prayer, that's supernatural. Jesus was speaking to people in his kingdom, and he had told them earlier Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Allegiance to the king means you have vicious enemies. The king says that to be persecuted for his sake is a blessing. In fact, it is a cause for rejoicing and a cause for gladness. Kingdom-minded people rejoice in their persecution while making heartfelt petitions to God for the people persecuting them. It takes an act of God for us to do that. You're not going to find the strength on your own to do that. God's grace must work in you. Andrew Brunson has been wrongfully imprisoned in Turkey for almost two years. In his recent third hearing, Andrew sat and listened for about two hours to witnesses giving false testimony against him, even people from his church. It was a prime opportunity for hatred, resentment, bitterness, and cynicism. But after this whole courtroom debacle was done, Andrew said this, quote, My faith teaches me to forgive, so I forgive those who testified against me. End of quote. He, he told his, his dear wife, Noreen, after the hearing, quote, It is a privilege to suffer for the sake of Christ. Blessed am I as I suffer for Him, Blessed am I as I am slandered. Blessed am I as I am being lied about. Blessed am I as I am imprisoned. Blessed am I as I share His suffering. End of quote. There's only one explanation for that. God's supernatural grace. That's it. God is... In in those quotes, in, in this struggle, God is providing his beloved adopted son, Andrew, the love that he needs in the midst of persecution. We're watching God be faithful to this man. God is loving Andrew by pouring love into Andrew as he trusts Christ so that Andrew can love his persecutors. And I would guess, I don't know, but I would guess that Andrew is praying for his persecutors. Jesus didn't say tolerate your enemies or treat your enemies with civility. He said to love them and to pray for them. The kingdom ethic is a supernatural ethic generated only by grace and lived only by faith. You can't just be moral Or try harder. You must trust Christ. Receive His grace and provision and walk by the Spirit in love and prayer. How can you tell if someone is a genuine Christian? And I think America honestly needs to answer that question. The American church is messed up. There are so many wolves that are just prancing around like sheep and thinking that because of their testimony and saying, hey, I got Jesus, I'm forgiven of my sins. They don't have to know Christ we're in a sad state and I want to ask the question how can you tell if someone is a genuine Christian and scholar Craig Blomberg said this the true test of genuine Christianity is how believers treat those whom they are naturally inclined to hate or who mistreat or persecute them them Someone can say that they're a Christian till they're blue in the face, but unless God's grace has transformed their hearts and unless they love supernaturally, they aren't a Christian at all. The mark of a genuine Christian is not membership in a local church. It's it's not church attendance. It's not being really involved with a bunch of religious activities and causes. The mark of a genuine Christian is supernatural love for others produced by grace at work within them. You can tell who really loves Jesus by watching how they love others. Next point. True children of God follow the perfect example of their heavenly Father supernaturally. Jesus used God's love as an illustration of a kind of love we should have as his children. Listen to Jesus. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Do you understand what Jesus was doing? He was calling his disciples to love as their heavenly Father loves What Jesus presented in verse 45 is often what theologians call God's common grace. Common grace is not saving grace. It doesn't save. It's the temporal blessings, the earthly blessings that God gives even to his enemies. God doesn't love his enemies with his saving and covenant love, and God's enemies will not escape his wrath and his judgment. But God does love his enemies by giving them many earthly blessings. The rebellious teenager parties all night, gets drunk, and is sexually promiscuous, and yet God gives them a beautiful sunrise in the morning. The callous, agnostic farmer is emotionally detached from his wife and takes no time to play with his kids, and yet God sends the rain and gives him abundant crops. See, God shows love to his enemies. And if our perfect heavenly father shows love to his enemies, and if we are truly his children, we too will show love to our enemies. If for no other reason than to be like our father. By loving our enemies supernaturally and praying for those who persecute us supernaturally, we are being like our father whom we love. We want to be like Him. And He gives us the grace to be like Him. And when we are living like our Heavenly Father by the power of His Spirit, we are at our best. We are our most beautiful us. Jesus' point in verses 46 and 47 is that even the corrupt tax collectors, even the Gentile pagans and unbelievers show their love to their own, right? Right? They know how to do that. They know how to show love to their own, how to show love to those who love them, those who profit them. That's natural. Anybody can love like that. Jesus calls his disciples to a superior and supernatural love, to a counterintuitive and a countercultural divine love. You should not consider yourself a child of God if you are not ready to love your enemies. If you don't want to do what your heavenly Father does, if you don't want to identify with Him in His perfect love, then you are not a child of His. God's children revere their Heavenly Father. They love Him. They admire Him. They adore Him. And so the desire of their heart is to be just like Him. And so if that desire is... I'm not saying be perfect and love exactly like Him. That's not my point. Do you want to love Him? Do you so revere God that... Oh, to have his kind of love working in you. That's the desire of your heart. And so you struggle by his spirit and by faith to, to love like he does. So, like children, those who are truly children of God, they depend on God and they receive from their Father what they need to love as he loves. The meaning of perfect in verse 48 is debatable. You could go in some different directions there. But I think Jesus is calling his disciples to perfect love. I think that's the standard. Be love perfectly just as your father loves perfectly. I think it's a high calling. And when he said, as your heavenly father is perfect, I understand him to mean ethically and morally perfect without defect. Lacking nothing. Ethical completeness, if you will. Since love is the context of what Jesus is talking about, I think Jesus meant love perfectly as your Father loves perfectly. Love completely. Love from an entirely pure and good and virtuous heart. Well, when you hear that, you're like, well, that's impossible. I can't do that. And I think that's the point. That kind of command, when we hear it, it condemns us in our unlove does that make sense? Unlove, whatever. You know my point. Unless we are in the kingdom, unless we are true children of God, unless we have the perfection of Christ imputed to us by faith, we, we can't love like this. Then the command, when we see it from inside the kingdom as children of God, it's, it, the command is different. It's not condemning anymore. The command becomes a beautiful call to be like our Father who loves us. And so, from inside the kingdom, we can trust our Father to help us love like He loves. And then we can hear the command of perfect love in light of the gospel of of 2 Corinthians 15, verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us. Isn't that great? Because we have concluded this that one has died for all therefore all have died and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. God is working his supernatural grace in us so that we are conformed to Christ and so that Christ's love controls us. All of our life. The law and determination to follow the law can't make you love like this. Only the gospel can. Only the king can. I struggle to love people. And you know what? So do you. So do you. Each of you imperfect in your love. Do you hope to love others by your own effort? If so, your hope is in the wrong place. The hope of the king's servant is in the king and his ability to produce in them a controlling love. And so, as you listen and hear Piercing Word perform the Sermon on the Mount, keep in mind that only one lives the ethics of the kingdom. Remember that Jesus told his disciples, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to what? To fulfill them. To fulfill all the law. Jesus the King fulfilled the law perfectly. Jesus the King loved God and others perfectly. Jesus the King is perfect as His heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus the King was and is the perfection of everything that He preached. He falls short of none of what came out of His mouth. He is entirely consistent. And a lover of God and a lover of others. So, if you hear the Sermon on the Mount as a great ethical rallying cheer for you to be a moral person, you've missed the beauty and the supremacy of Christ. You have heard it foolishly. The Sermon on the Mount is supposed to make you feel inadequate. And to lead you straight to the king to find perfect virtue in him and to receive his grace. And then the sermon becomes, it it transforms as you are in Christ into your life's ambition. It becomes like, that's what I want. And I love these lyrics, which I think say it so well. Your perfect law exposes me. I feel my sin and desperate need. My best good works are powerless to satisfy your righteousness. But there is one who lived for me, his life and work, my victory, his death forever sealed in time, raised from the grave by God's design. The message of the Sermon on the Mount is not try hard and be a moral person and please God. The Sermon on the Mount is not just a bunch of of good principles that our culture really needs to hear so that we can live and clean our act up. The heart of the Sermon on the Mount is Christ. Christ and the radiance of His kingly perfection. Hear the Sermon. In a way that leads you to marvel at the supremacy of Christ and to receive from Him supernatural grace by faith to live as He lives. We must hear the Sermon on the Mount through the earbuds of law and gospel. And if we do, here's what happens we are humbled, Christ is exalted. And the Spirit leads us to praise God for His grace and to live the law of love for His glory alone. Now, I have a question. How will you hear the Sermon on the Mount? Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your rich Word which gives us so much It is a precious gift, and I pray that today would be such a blessing that as we hear piercing word in the Sermon on the Mount, that we would hear it through the earbuds of the law and gospel, that your spirit would help us to hear it rightly so that we are thrown to the foot of the cross to receive supernatural grace. Without grace, none of us can do any of this with grace, with your help, with your spirit. God, you kindly lead us to love like you love, to live like you live, to be like you, our Father. We can't ever be perfectly like you, but we are being conformed to the image of Jesus by faith as you work and as we work because you work in us. So God, help us to hear rightly. Help us to treasure the Sermon on the Mount, not as some great ethical code for our culture that we should call them to these things without explaining to them that they can't. They're condemned under the law and they need Christ. So help us to love Christ, to see Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, to see His moral supremacy and moral beauty and ethical perfection, and to run to Him to find power and grace, to be like Him. Would you do that for us kindly, God? Would you help us in that respect? For your glory. Amen.